Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that that's what we're going to walk through here. So this is the material that you should be focusing on as you prepare for next week, which is Friday, right? Not next Wednesday. Yes. yes. Okay. I guess is next uh, Wednesday. Sounds exciting. All right. So we So um, what we spent the first three weeks of the course on, and then what we did today, and the depth of understanding will be comparable to the types of questions that I'm going to ask you here. So this is a mix of sample problems and a little bit of didactic, just to explain or re refresh your memories about the things you should be focusing on. When it comes to autonomic pharmacology, we only got through about maybe a half of what I wanted to. So whatever we didn't cover last week will not be included on the exam. It's only up until the end of decongestants. And I, I have an example or two of that material here too. So let's start with this, this question. So this drug, rofecoxib, is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent. It's actually one of those COX-2 inhibitors. Just like we have celecoxib, which is on the market now, this is one of the other drugs that was taken off of the market. There was one other one called baldecoxib. A few years after it was approved, studies were done to suggest the medication may increase the risk for adverse cardiovascular events, specifically an increased risk for thrombotic events, like an MI or like a stroke, for the reasons we talked about at the beginning of class today. The evidence prompted removal of the drug from the market. This decision was based on evidence derived from which phase of study? Four. Right, phase four. This was information that was learned about this drug after it first became available. And so by definition, anything after first approved becomes phase four level of evidence. One, two, and three is anything we learned before the first time. And where is phase five? Doesn't exist. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a choice that's not correct. <laughs> All right, now, and so for this slide here, there's a whole lot of stuff that we talked about. Was the, the Alzheimer's drug in this class? Yeah. yeah. It was also good for Alzheimer's. That was this class, right? Yeah. Also good for alopecia? Yeah. <laughs> Is that it? Yeah. 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 Okay. So um, as we talked about that drug, taking it through the process, there are a bunch of things that I asked you along the way, like what you think about this, or how do you think this would happen? So some of those questions will probably turn up again conceptually. So be familiar with that. Certainly what the subjects look like in phases one, two, and three, how they're similar, how they're different, and what the primary objectives are in the preclinical testing and the clinical trials. What are those scientists ultimately most interested in? What it means to have an IND filed, an FYI to the FDA about the study design, versus an NDA, and how that comes with a pretty large fee associated with it for most new drugs. Once the data are ready for the FDA to weigh in, to determine approval or not, that's where the NDA becomes part of the picture. Um, is phase three, does it, since it has RCTs, does it also look at effectiveness? It does. Okay. That yeah, was phase, the phase three is really about safety and efficacy. Safety throughout the whole process, Efficacy finally being proven definitively that this is how the drug will prove benefit in the patients you want to use it in. Okay, is that different than effectiveness? No, nope, they're no, the same thing. They're the same thing. Yeah. Okay. For our purposes, assume they are the same thing. Oh, because I was thinking, like, when you're comparing against another drug, is that my thing? Well, that would be relative efficacy. Oh. Okay. Or relative effectiveness. Usually the comparison is a placebo because who wants to challenge a new drug against something else that already does the same thing, right? Yeah. You might fail. Like for a top, like I was thinking something ethically. Like, no. Yeah, and there are ethical things that enter into the picture. If there's a standard of care already, then you've got to compare your drug to the standard of care. Okay. Maybe on top of the standard of care in addition to it. All right. What these mean, primary, secondary, and tertiary, and most importantly, What's the primary difference, lack of, uh, forgive the pun there, between primary and other types? Like what's an example of what you might label as primary and what are the advantages or disadvantages to that type of information versus something that might be a, a reference book, a textbook, a handheld device with drug information on it? 
Good? Okay. Now, this question next is going to refer to this slide here. So we have time versus concentration. One word for this is pharmacokinetics. And we're giving the same drug by two different doses, an oral dose and an IV dose. The dose is exactly the same. It's the same drug, just given by two different routes. So this is the question. Which of the following determines the absolute oral bioavailability of drug A? Is it the slope of the IV dose divided by the slope of the oral dose? So is it this slope here divided by that slope there or vice versa? At what's the time at which the maximum concentration is achieved for the oral dose? So what's the time it takes to get to that point? Or is it the maximum concentration achieved for that dose? So what is the actual concentration at that point? Or is it the rate of elimination for the IV dose divided by the rate of elimination of the oral dose? Or is it the area under the curve of the oral dose divided by the area under the curve of the IV dose? E. It's E, right? Pretty clear. D and A are essentially the same thing. B and C are components that you might use to determine relative bioavailability in addition to A and C <coughs> if you were comparing what? A generic. A brand and a generic, right? Same drug, same dose, two different companies. Exactly. Okay. This relationship here between half-life, volume of distribution, and clearance. You've got to remember that relationship. I don't think you need to memorize the formula, but it, you need to remember where they relate to each other. Volume distribution is the numerator. Clearance is the denominator. How the, if the volume gets larger, the half-life gets longer. If the clearance gets smaller, the half-life gets longer. How those might change in relation to each other. Volume distribution and clearance are independent variables. Half-life depends on both of them. A drug is given as a zero-order IV infusion. All this means, don't let that, the way the drug is administered, confuse you. This just means a constant amount of drug is administered per unit of time. Like it's always one milligram per minute, or always five milligrams per hour. That's essentially zero-order. Doesn't really matter. Without a loading dose, assume a one-compartment model. That is the only thing we've talked about so far, are one-compartment models. So don't let that lead you down some confusing path. The drug is known to have a half-life of 10 hours. The mean concentration achieved at steady state is 12 units. How long after stopping this infusion, you reach steady state, so how long after stopping it, Will the plasma level now fall to one and a half units? Will it be 10 hours, 20 hours, 30 hours, 40 hours, or there is not enough information provided here for you to determine this? Or maybe you just can't determine it. <laughs> right, C, 30 hours. So what we've done here, just two pictures to make it clear for everyone, is we've given this drug and we've achieved a steady state of 12 units, the time it takes to get there is going to be about how long? 40 hours, right? About four half-lives, 10 hours is the half-life. So that's this picture right here. We're giving this drug repeatedly. You get to four half-lives, you're now at steady state 12 units. So if you stop it, the time to remove more than 90% of the drug is what? Another 40 hours, right? But I'm not asking you that. I'm saying how long is it going to take specifically to get one and a half units. So you're at 12 units. In one half-life, what happens? You fall by 50%, so you fall to six units. In the second half-life, what happens? You fall another 50%, so to three units. And then another half-life, another 50%. Now you're at 1.5 units, and that's three half-lives. Three times 10, 30 hours. Good? OK. And this, the table that defines specifically what's happening with each completion of process. One half-life, 50%. Second half-life, another 50%. 75% from the total. Keep doing that. It's cumulative. You get to a point of four half-lives, and you're 94% of the way to completion of the process, whether that's time to steady state or time to remove the drug after you stop administering it. Either way, it's proportional and linear. All right. The drug interactions that may be clinically relevant, the ones that are most important for our purposes are which two? 
Interactions of absorption, which can be driven by either chelation or other binding types of interactions, where the drugs stick to each other and impair absorption of one or both of the drugs involved, or pH-related, so drugs that require a certain pH, and if you change that with other drugs, <coughs> that can impair absorption. So that's, that's one big type, absorption. Highly relevant clinically. Usually there are things we can do to modify the administration times to at least get around the binding interactions. Depending on the duration of pH change, you may or may not be able to separate administration times of other drugs. And what's the second one? Interactions of metabolism. We started to see today some very real scenarios where drugs that are used commonly can potentially be interacted with and alter the effects. So that's the other one. So being able to appreciate what happens to the substrate drug when there's either induction or inhibition of metabolism. Substrate drug is the victim. It's the drug that's normally cleared by the process of metabolism. Inhibition or induction is what's happening to the enzymes as a consequence of being exposed to something else, usually some other drug. Could be genetic. Could be there's an alteration in someone's genetic profile that alters the way that the drug is cleared. That actually happens a fair amount. When we were talking about um, the patient considerations and the kidney function, we were given that table. In this, in this section. Um, yeah, it was a little bit. Material ITA, not today. Yeah. Right? So we had, a, we had like a GFR of, say, greater than 60 or 30 to 60 or maybe less than 30, using different numbers. And you either, you know, adjust the dose by 100% or maybe 50%, that table, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if the values that were given were like universal values or was they just for that example? The columns? The columns that were yeah, given? It was, yeah, it was the hours the, the, Oh, yeah. So either way, all the numbers that were in there were specific to a particular drug. The drug in question that I was using there was something called yeah. Unison, ampicillin, sulbactam, it's an antibiotic. But the parameters, they're ballpark to what you see, but they're not universal. Okay. So depending on the drug, the cutoff criteria may be different. For instance, for what we talked about today, rivaroxaban is one of those newer anticoagulants. If you're using that drug for atrial fibrillation, the cutoff for using it or not, is a GFR, creatinine clearance, of less than 50. Okay. Use it yes or no. But if you're using it to treat a DVT, the cutoff is less than 30. So not only there is the cutoff different, the indication by which you make the cutoff is different. So it's just every drug is a little bit different. All right, drug C, a substrate for cytochrome 3A enzymes. Now we introduce drug D. It's a known inducer of those enzymes. Which of the following happens to drug C? Levels go up, down, or they are not changed? Levels go down, right? You induce the enzymes, there's now more of them. You're going to speed up the clearance of whatever the substrate is. In this case, the substrate is simply named drug C. Now, in the first three weeks, we used a lot of example names, and that's all they were to illustrate the concepts so that you could appreciate that this is really happening out there, outside of the classroom. But I don't expect you to remember those drug names until we get to them. So for instance, one of you showed me a slide in the little break we just took about the agents that have a narrow therapeutic margin, and um, we sometimes monitor them because of their narrow therapeutic margin. And they were like antiarrhythmics, and they were antidepressants, and at the bottom there were some antithrombotics. And what I said was, well, those drug names aren't relevant unless we've talked about them. So what's now relevant? The antithrombotics that were on that slide, which was, remember which two? Heparin and warfarin, right there on the bottom. So those are now, those are now in play. The other drugs are still drugs A, B, and C. You need to conceptually understand what's happening, but whether or not you know what that drug is doesn't really matter yet. Okay, so here's an example, again, using real drug names. Triazolam, which is an, a, um, a benzodiazepine anxiolytic that's been around for many years, give a 0.5 milligram dose to an average otherwise healthy person not taking any other drugs, and you're going to get a peak level that occurs very quickly after a couple of hours, and it's going to be between two and three units. 
and it will be wear, it will wash out very quickly. Within eight to ten hours, there's really not much drug left in the body. But if this same individual takes rifampin, a very strong inducer for a whole week, maybe two weeks, and then you give them triazolam, this is what happens at the same 0.5 milligram dose. Barely detectable, not enough to produce any effect. That's enzyme induction. The presence of rifampin has induced metabolism to the point where triazolam at the usual dose just doesn't work. And the opposite is true. So take the exact same drug. Here we have a control patient given triazolam all by itself. Combine it with a strong inhibitor, in this case ritonavir, and now you get higher levels and they stay that high for longer than a day. So a drug that usually lasts just about eight hours is now lasting all weekend long because of a drug-drug interaction. That's an inhibition of enzyme metabolism. The processes are different. Inhibition is blocking a substance that already exists, so the onset is pretty quick. One dose of ritonavir will produce this interaction. Induction is stimulation of the formation of new protein. And so that's going to build up over time, which is why in this slide, the person needs to be on rifampin for a week in order to measure the interaction. One dose of rifampin isn't enough to produce this kind of induction. You'd have to be exposed to it every day for at least seven to 10 days to generate enough protein for it to make a difference. Drug A is metabolized in the liver by cytochrome enzymes. Drug B is a known inhibitor of these enzymes. Which of the following happens to drug A when these drugs are combined? Effect is enhanced, diminished, unchanged, or it depends. Did I mention this when we were in class a few weeks ago? Wouldn't it be cool if you had a question where the answer is it depends? <laughs> sort of fun, wouldn't it? That's the answer here. And what does it depend on? Oh, I mean, it could be any one of those. It depends on, it depends on what it is that you're dealing with. Drug A, what is that? So I'm not asking you what direction the levels of drug A go in. I'm asking what's the clinical effect. That's how this question differs from the one I just asked you before. So let's just say that drug A, let's see if you can recall this from today. Let's just say that drug A is clopidogrel or plavix. What happens, in fact, Justin asked you the same question. What happens when you block the metabolism of plavix? The parent drug will accumulate, it won't be metabolized, and the consequence of that will be what? Reduced effect. Because it's a prodrug. Wild guess. The process, the process of metabolism turns clopidogrel into the active metabolite. If you're not able to do that, clopidogrel will not work. Blocking the metabolism with another drug will reduce the efficacy. Clinical effect is diminished. If, if Plavix were the active drug and the process of metabolism cleared it, then what would happen? The effect would be enhanced. So it depends. Depends on what drug A is. In this case, you don't know what drug A is, so the answer is it depends. All right, so here is the table. The victim is a drug like Plavix, a drug like a statin we used in class when we were talking about these. <coughs> if the process inhibition, the plasma levels go up. If the active drug is the drug that you gave, the original drug, then the effect is enhanced. Induction, just the opposite. Levels reduced, efficacy reduced. The stars represent what happens to clinical effect if you're dealing with the prodrug. If you're dealing with a drug like Plavix and you induce the metabolism, then surely the, bl the blood levels of the parent drug are reduced, but the efficacy now is enhanced because there's even more active metabolite. For an enhanced prodrug, or for, yeah, for 
drug where the enzyme has been uh, induced, would you expect a change in the half-life? Yes. Yeah. Would you expect changes in half-life if you alter rate of metabolism? And the answer is yes. All right, factors that can influence this process of metabolism. There are a whole bunch of them. In fact, there's probably some we don't even appreciate are having an impact. What are the two most important? Genetics. And habits. Just repeating what I'm hearing. Other drugs. That's 1A. And what's 1B? Age, disease. Disease? <laughs> genetics? It's genetics. 1A, 1B, in whatever order you want to put it, these are the two most important factors that influence metabolism. There are a bunch of others, but those two we know for sure have big impact on how much drug someone's exposed to. Other drugs that inhibit or induce, having genetic polymorphisms, which basically means there could be too much or too little of an enzyme compared to the average, the average population. And so this here is a picture of what? One word to describe this. Pharmacogenomics. Pharmacogenomics. So let me let me just explain. So. In most instances today, regardless of your genetic makeup, everyone gets the same dose. Doesn't mean it's the right dose, but every one size fits all, and then what do we do? We individually titrate their own little experiment, you know, start low and work your way up to the right dose. Personalized medicine using pharmacogenomics, the objective is to make this a little bit more scientific. Alright, so there's an average population for which they get the usual 100 milligram dose. But there are some people who are ultra-rapid metabolizers because of genetic makeup, but we need to give them a higher dose up front. We measure who those people are, and we can make that prediction, and we give them the right dose to start with. And that there are others that are poor metabolizers. But we know that they, 10 milligrams will produce the same effect as 100 milligrams in the average population. So we screen them, and we give them the right dose up front. And we don't have to do all this titration. Now, we're not to the point yet where we can do this across the board, largely because of either lack of understanding, lack of assays, or barriers related to cost. Most of it, the latter. But this is the direction we're moving in, being able to take this approach for the majority of drugs, not just five or six of them that are on the market. And so the next decade, this concept will become increasingly relevant. I'm pretty confident about that. We've already talked about it for 10 years. Now time to move it forward. All right, drug C, substrate for now PGP transport. Drug D, known to block that transport. What mostly happens to drug C? Bioavailability goes up, down, or is unchanged. Increased? Decreased? It's an efflux transport. It's this. We've seen it now a couple of times. Right? So drug is taken up by the transporter, effluxed right back into the intestine. Never gets absorbed. Some percentage of it. If you block that, what happens? More is now available. So it enhances bioavailability. Right? A. Not asking about the clinical effects. Same thing for prodrugs here. It's what happens to the bioavailability, how much is available. Can I explain this again? This, yeah. So let's just say, what was the drug that came up last hour? Was it the bigotran? It was any of the newer agents, right? So let's just say you take the bigotran. Usual dose is 150 milligrams. Some percentage of that drug, we'll say 10% of that drug, is usually taken up by this efflux transporter and turned right back into the intestine and never absorbed. So for every 150 milligrams you take, there's maybe 140, 130 milligrams that gets into the rest of the body. 
and the other 10 to 20 milligrams does not get absorbed. But if you block efflux, none of the drug gets taken up and spit back out. All of it gets into the body. So that's what I'm talking about. So that's the scenario here. So drug, it, drug C would be the bigotan. Drug D would be something like amiodarone. Just to take real names from that slide, not that you need to know amiodarone. Well, we were talking about bioavailability before with oral and IV drugs. Would we still say that it's an increased bioavailability if we've got an increased concentration, but it's an IV drug? So if it were an IV drug, <coughs> would this scenario apply? That's the question. Yeah. And the answer is no. You because what? What would happen if it were given IV? You're bypassing all of this. It's going directly into the body. It's 100% bioavailable. PGP now becomes irrelevant because it's at the it's at the surface site between the intestinal tract and the portal circulation. Right. You're not. This is into the portal circulation, not into systemic circulation. But you're right. Bioavailability of an IV drug. You could say is non-relevant. It's 100%. PGP does not apply there. Okay. So then transitioning here to where we were last week. So talking about, at least beginning to talk about autonomic pharmacology and how if we enhance sympathetic activity, we get certain effects at end organs. If we enhance parasympathetic activity, we get certain effects at end organs. And the transmitters that are relevant. At the end organs of parasympathetic, it was what? The, the muscarinic receptor. And that's about as far as we got. I'll show you a picture here, but just to reemphasize that you don't have to worry about that. On the end organ side of sympathetic, it was what receptors? Alpha and beta receptors. And the transmitter? The transmitters are norepinephrine and epinephrine. That was more relevant. We started to talk about a little bit of drug modulation of that, and we used the example of decongestants to get there. So acetylcholine no matter where it is, in the ganglia, is interacting with nicotinic receptors. At the end organs on the parasympathetic side, it's muscarinic receptors. And then end organs for the sympathetic side, norepinephrine, alpha and beta, or beta and alpha, in that order, because of the way that those transmitters <coughs> affect those receptors more selectively. So a 45-year-old man prescribed a drug that works as an alpha-1 adrenergic antagonist or a blocker. What is this drug being used for? Hypertension. Block alpha-1 receptors, and what you're doing is blocking the ability of the body to vasoconstrict. Normally alpha-1 stimulation causes vasoconstriction. If you block that, the blood vessels will dilate. And which of these would apply? Hypertension. Does anyone remember the prototype name of the drug that does this? At this point, I don't care if you remember the name. I'm just curious if you do. It's not a tenola. It's a beta blocker. The LOL drugs so far, those are beta blockers. No, not there. It's, it's prazosin. Prazosin or prazosin, however you want to pronounce that. Aren't there also acute um, migraine headache medications that work off um, blood vessels? Yeah, so aren't there, in fact, all of these choices I put here for a reason. So let's start with the first one. So aren't there medications that can be used to acutely abort a migraine headache that somehow affect blood vessels? The answer is yes. What are those types of drugs most commonly? Does anyone know, anyone know people who suffer from migraines? The triptans, right, the triptan drugs, sumatriptan, rizotriptan, a bunch of naratriptan, zolmatriptan, those drugs do what to blood vessels? They cause constriction. Yeah, the reason for the headache pain is because of a vasodilated cranial vessel. That dilated throbbing vessel causes the throbbing headache pain. In order to acutely relieve that, you give something that can constrict those vessels and make the pain go away. So it'd be just the opposite. You wouldn't want to get praises in that case. You might actually make it worse. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do much to the cranial vessels, but if anything, it might dilate them, and that would make symptoms worse. But I'm glad you brought that up. How about urinary incontinence? What's the other effect of alpha-1 stimulation in the bladder? It constricts 
the urinary sphincter, right, that muscle by which the urine drains from the bladder, that's innervated by alpha receptors. When they're stimulated, <coughs> that muscle constricts, just like the peripheral vasculature. So what happens if you block an alpha receptor? That relaxes. So if your underlying symptom is urinary incontinence, what's going to happen here? It's going to make it worse, right? You'll leak even more urine. In fact, sometimes alpha agonists are used to treat that symptom. If you have incontinence, an alpha agonist, like a decongestant drug taken systemically, can help minimize the amount of incontinence that occurs. doesn't make it go away, but it makes it a little bit more manageable. Seasonal allergies. What are we trying to do there, at least in terms of what we've talked about so far? If it's a lot of nasal congestion, we want to do what? Give something to constrict the vessels and make the, the sinus passages open up more readily. The choice D, I skipped over that. Did we talk about this last week, pesticide poisoning? So when you jump forward to um, this here, this is the slide I was asked about at the end of class last week. You don't need to know too much about it yet because we didn't really come back to it. I put it, I put it in the material in advance of where we were really going to talk about it. So it was there to introduce what's happening, and then we circle back to it with antihistamine drugs, which we didn't get to last week. But let me just say this. If someone is exposed to too much of a pesticide, it's usually the result is organophosphate poisoning. And what that does is it binds up in a covalent manner the cholinesterase enzyme. So what happens as a result? Too much what? Increased acetylcholine. And the effect we're worried about is muscle paralysis. Because now acetylcholine affects nicotinic receptors at the neuromuscular junction. It causes a prolonged depolarization there to the point where you develop a paralysis. The same effect occurs through nerve gases, like sarin nerve gas, which unfortunately has been used in Syria recently. That will do the same thing. It poisons cholinesterase enzymes, which now acetylcholine floods the neuromuscular junction and paralysis results and can be life-threatening as well. So that's that pesticide poisoning, I put that in the question so I would come back to tell you about that. But that's as much as I want you to know about that diagram at this point. So this, this answer is not relevant at all to the sympathetic side. It's relevant to the parasympathetic side. So each of those answers had a purpose. Only one was correct. All right, and so alpha-1 and alpha-2 receptors, what you normally would expect from their stimulation and what you would expect if you were to antagonize them. So not that you need to remember the drug names like Prazosin for alpha-1 or Claudinine for alpha-2, but the question would be similar to this one. What would you expect if you were to stimulate or block those receptors? Which answer makes the most sense? And given how quickly you answered hypertension, I'm hoping for good things next week. <laughs> 100%. No? 90? 90%? 50%. High aspirations. All right. So alpha-2 receptors, that's why this picture is here. So if you stimulate an alpha-2 receptor, what happens? Suppress the release of norepinephrine, right? So that's how clonidine works the lower blood pressure. There's less norepinephrine, which means there's less stimulation of alpha-1 receptors in the rest of the body. And then beta receptors. What happens when you stimulate a beta-1 receptor? Mostly increase in heart rate. Don't worry about the renin secretion at this point. Not relevant yet. In beta-2 receptors, smooth muscle relaxation primarily where? In the lungs, right? So what kind of drug would you give to open up someone's lungs? Albuterol is an example drug of what? Beta-2 agonist. What's the neurotransmitter endogenously that already does that for us? Epinephrine. If you are emergently not able to breathe, what's our rescue drug? Epinephrine. It makes sense that we would use that over norepinephrine. Norepinephrine would work, but it would require a higher dose and would have a lot of other effects that we probably don't need to deal with, epinephrine would be better. If you stimulate alpha-2 a lot, would you eventually get a decrease in epinephrine too? 
if you stimulate alpha 2 a lot, would you eventually get a decrease in epinephrine 2? You might get some. It's usually not enough to be meaningful. And mostly because the majority of epinephrine is coming from where? And the adrenal gland, right? So it's not, it's not as easy to target that, for better or worse. <coughs> All right, so I told you why this was here. And just to sort of set you up, when you give drugs that stimulate or block muscarinic receptors, those same drugs often stimulate or block another type of receptor. Does anyone know what type? It's the histamine receptor. There's a lot of overlap. And the opposite is true. Give someone a drug that stimulates histamine or blocks histamine receptors, and that drug will also stimulate or block muscarinic receptors. Not because we want it to, but because the receptors are hard to differentiate as far as the drug is concerned. But again, that's for the next time. Not something I'm going to test you on or that you should see next week unless it's slipped in there by mistake. In which case it will become readily apparent and we will, we will get rid of that. <laughs> Again, we're only shooting 50%. Maybe I can put it in there. What, and you haven't had an exam yet, right? The first one's coming up. So we have no idea like what performance is like in this group. <laughs> and they went okay? cardiovascular prevention. So now we're getting to the material that Justin taught today. In the spring, he will be going for elective surgical procedure involving his left knee. How long before the procedure should the aspirin be stopped if you want to be free of the antiplatelet effects? So about one hour, about one day, about one week, or about one month. <laughs> about about one week, right? Why? Why? That's how long it's going to take to generate a whole new batch of platelets that haven't been exposed to aspirin. Given the covalent nature of the way aspirin binds to cyclooxygenase type one, it's a very long-lasting effect. And so here's another way of looking at the same picture that Justin showed you today. It just has a little bit of color to it. We introduced this last week without talking about the nuances. We talked about arachidonic acid cascade from a much bigger picture and how it controls a lot of inflammatory mediators. I showed you both cyclooxygenase and how it can be converted by lipooxygenase to leukotrienes. Where were the leukotrienes? In the lungs. Yeah, so that, now what we're doing is we're just focusing on the left-hand side of that diagram from last week in breaking it down more specifically into the types of prostacyclin and thromboxanes and other prostaglandin-like substances that might get produced. If you inhibit cyclooxygenase type 1, you inhibit thromboxanes. So you're preventing platelet aggregation, or preventing platelet activation, which prevents platelet aggregation, and you are preventing vasoconstriction. <coughs> so you get a vasodilatory effect and you get an antiplatelet effect. That's how aspirin works. And it takes only a small dose of aspirin to achieve this effect because what? Well, the irreversibility part goes a long way towards telling us what about the drug or determining what about it. The frequency by which we need to take it, right? One dose per day is at most what you need. The, the dose itself, the small dose itself is because It's a COX-1 selective agent. It's relatively easy for that drug to knock that enzyme out. If you want to use aspirin as an anti-inflammatory, you've got to use what? Much higher doses because it needs to overcome that selectivity and start to inhibit the other side of the pathway. COX type 2, which isn't depicted here, but is responsible for producing a lot of the inflammation. That's what you're using aspirin for. You've got to use a higher dose to overcome selectivity. We have other drugs that achieve that outcome at more reasonable doses, like NSAIDs, so we use those instead. All right, so then these are the antiplatelet agents. 
and the drug names that are relevant for the exam coming up next week. Now I'm going to further narrow this down. So there's only one drug from the cyclooxygenase family that we use to inhibit platelets therapeutically, and that's aspirin. You've all got to know that. For the ADP inhibitors, the PTY12 inhibitors, it's clopidogrel, which is Plavix. Recognize that drug, map it back to this family, and know the things that were talked about it today. Don't worry so much about the other alternatives. There's even more alternatives than these, but don't worry about their... If you see their names, they will not be the right answer to anything. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. So if you have extra time, I guess you could do that. So protease-activated receptor inhibitors, otherwise known as thrombin receptor inhibitors, there's Vorpaxar, that's the only drug in that family. As Justin mentioned, the clinical utility of that drug is very much unknown. It's the newest of everything up here, and where it fits is anyone's guess. We have yet to use it in this hospital. The phosphodiesterase inhibitors, there were two that he mentioned. Solospazole was one, diperidamol is the other one. If you see any of these drugs used from this family, it's going to be diperidamol. It's the weakest of these drugs. What would you expect to be a side effect common to all of these? Bleeding. Bleeding, right? And guess what you don't see with diperidamol? You don't see a whole lot of bleeding, which tells you what? It's a relatively weak agent. This is a drug that gets used when you have a patient who's a candidate for antiplatelet therapy and they can't tolerate anything else. And you don't feel comfortable withholding anything, so you give them that, but we're not really even sure it works all that well. And then the 2B3 receptor blockers, let's, um, let's go with just tyrofibin. It's the cleanest of the three in terms of allergic reaction potential. So if you see that drug name, map it back to the family by which it works. And so this picture here, a different one than you've seen, but conceptually it's the same thing. So you inhibit thromboxane by doing what? What kind of drug? Or what drug? Aspirin, right? Aspirin inhibits thromboxanes, and that will inhibit platelet activation. You inhibit adenosine diphosphate by giving something called the PTY12 receptor blocker. That's what? That's Plavix or clopidogrel. You can inhibit some of the stuff that's happening inside the cell to trigger activation. That's what diperidamol is doing. Don't worry so much about anything else beyond that. And then you can inhibit the thrombin receptor by what drug? Vorapaxar, right. That's where that works. And then lastly, the, the most potent of all of these is blocking the 2B3A receptors so that the cross-linking by fibrin can occur. The only way that one platelet can stick to another platelet is if it's cross-linked by fibrin strands. And the only way the fibrin strands will recognize the platelet is if there's this complex receptor on the surface. If that receptor is blocked by a drug, there can't be cross-linking. And what's that drug? Tyrofibin, right? That's the one example from that family. So essentially, three or four drugs that inhibit platelet activation, what's the last drug do? Tyrofibin, do, tyrofibin doesn't affect platelet activation, does it? It affects platelet aggregation. The actual ability of platelets to stick together, activated or not, is prevented by that last family, which makes them such strong drugs. Only given by parenteral administration. Everything else up here is given orally. These 2B3 receptor blockers, they're actually not used all that often. The, the parenteral direct thrombin inhibitors, like Argatraban by Valerubin, have largely replaced these drugs. All right, clopidogrel, we've seen this before, it just sounds a little bit different, the question. Metabolized by this specific cytochrome enzyme, 2C19. Some people, because of genetics, underexpress that enzyme. So what would you expect to happen? So some people are saying, is this a prodrug? And I'm saying, what happened 15 minutes ago? <laughs> this was the example, right? Clopidogrel, Plavix, is a prodrug, which means what? If you don't have the enzymes, the drug will not work as well. Diminished therapeutic effect. 
Does that make sense to everyone? All right, I'm going to show you another picture just so we can be very clear. Clopidogrel <laughs> on the bottom, absorbed in the intestinal tract. That's what that's supposed to be. It here in green is not active. That represents inactive drug. I would have chosen the make it red, but they made it green. So green is then activated in a two-step process by a series of cytochrome enzymes in the liver. So half activated by these enzymes and then the rest is activated. And finally the red dot is active metabolite. Has a pretty complicated name, I don't remember what it's called. But that's the form that you need to bind to this receptor and inhibit platelet activation. If you don't have these enzymes, Green never becomes red. It can't become active. Or it does so much less. And the reason I say much less is because this is one enzyme, and what do you see on the slide? A whole bunch. Now, 2C19 happens to be prevalent in both steps. So knocking that one out probably means you reduce a lot of the conversion, but you don't reduce all of it. And so how meaningful is this? It probably is meaningful, but it's hard to quantitate exactly how much. We know that patients that lack this enzyme probably aren't great candidates for this drug. Better to use something that works more directly, like this is where ticagrelor would come in. You see it's already red? Which means it's not what? It's not a program. The drug you give is the active drug. It binds directly. There is no biotransformation. So if you happen to know that someone has a polymorphism in 2C19, maybe you go to one of the other drugs. That's how you make these decisions clinically. Right, we good with that? How is it that you can take Plavix and put it into the human body and it's a really strong inhibitor of platelet activation, yet put it into a test tube and it has no effect on platelets? It requires enzymes for activation, right? That's the answer. Good. All right. 57-year-old man in the hospital receiving IV heparin continuous infusion. And it makes sense that it's continuous infusion because of what? It has such a short half-life, right? Half-life of less than two hours means we probably have to give it by continuous infusion just to make it practical. If we didn't give it continuous infusion, how often would we be giving the doses? Probably every one to two hours. We'd have to be giving it all the time. It just wouldn't make sense. So what laboratory test is used to monitor the effects? PTT, we all agree? Whether you call it the APTT or the PTT, that's the test you most often will use to monitor the effects of this drug. What's an alternative? Not choice up here. Uh, factor 10. A direct factor 10A assay. Right? You could do that too. In certain populations, that might be necessary. Now, Justin, I know, is making this more complicated than it needs to be. But that's because he does his research in looking at what we need to monitor for these drugs. And unfortunately or fortunately, he dives into dark places when that's the case. He starts to talk about all the different scenarios that might elevate or suppress it. And we're not going to do that to you on the exam. I do want you to appreciate, just very basically, the PTT or APTT is used to monitor heparin usually. And the PT, or standardized to the INR, is used to monitor warfarin. And the other drugs are simply not as easy to monitor. That's the take-home point. And then we can get into the nuances once you get into the clinical experiences next year. Sound fair? Okay. Mechanistically, what's happening with heparins is they are not working directly. They are working indirectly by binding antithrombin-3, which in turn helps antithrombin-3 inactivate certain clotting factors, specifically factor 2 and factor 10. Unfractionated heparin knocks out both of them. Low molecular weight or fondoparinox is more selective for just one over both of them. Laboratory studies reveal your patient has received too much heparin. You observe signs of bleeding. Which of the following can correct this? can't see it from here. D, right? Protamine? Salmon sperm. That is your antidote. <laughs> Who discovered that? <laughs> I was waiting for that historical piece. I don't know the answer. Yeah, All right, the bigger is... What is the bigger chance? It's an oral... It's an oral... 
Factor two. <laughs> it's a direct thrombin inhibitor. It's an oral direct thrombin inhibitor. Um, what's idariocizumab? I like to say that one. It's the reversal for too much to bigotry. It's the monoclonal antibody against that drug. Thytonodiagnosis. What's that? You all knew it when Justin asked you how we manage overdose. What is it? This is the chemical name for vitamin K. This is the drug you're looking for if you're looking to prescribe vitamin K in the hospital. And what about B? Hasn't come up yet in this course, but I thought I'd throw it in there. Because you'll need to know it when you get to the pants. If you make it there, that's what you'll need. And what do we use N-acetylcysteine most commonly for? Well, one of the more common reasons. It's, to, it's an antidote to something. What is the most common cause of drug-induced liver failure in the world? Tylenol overdose. And how does that get managed? N-acetylcysteine is your antidote. That's why you need to know it later on. Not, not yet. I thought I'd throw it in there. Which of the following is the main advantage to using low molecular heparin, a drug like anoxaparin, over unfractionated heparin, traditional heparin, oftentimes called unfractionated heparin? Is it the efficacy in protamine in reversing the effect? Is it the dose predictability? Is it because there's significantly less risk for bleeding? Or is it because it's a safe alternative if there's a history of HIT? What does that stand for? Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So which of these applies? Uh, first, there was not consensus. And second, um, uh, many of you were not right, if I heard it correctly. So uh, how many said A? Protamine will reverse some of the effect, but not all of it. And so that wouldn't be an advantage. That's one of the limitations, actually. At best, you can reverse about 60% of the effect with protamine, whereas you can reverse all the effect or close to it with heparin. Dose predictability. All right, I got a few people for B. Um, significantly less risk for bleeding. This is a common misperception. It's not true. There is not significantly less. If you use the drug correctly, both of them, the risk of bleeding is about the same. Head-to-head -head studies show this repeatedly. Safe alternative of history of HIT. Yes. How many of them? That's where a lot of you went wrong. That's a D. So if there's a history of HIT, no, no, no. What you're thinking of is that the incidence is lower. But we didn't get to it in class. If there is already a pre-existing history, you need to avoid both heparin and low liquid heparins. Because the, the challenge with either one is likely to produce an even more severe drop in platelet counts. But you're right. So what you're thinking of, the reason you were misled, is because the incidence of HIT is a little bit less with lomicoheparins. But if it occurs due to either one, then going forward, both of them get ruled out for at least the foreseeable future. That's the main reason. Well, we'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. So that now means what's right. Dose predictability, yeah. It's a much easier type of therapy to use. Longer half-life, clear through the kidney, more predictable, one size fits all, at least milligram per kilogram wise. And because it's easier to use, that leads to what misperception? That the risk for bleeding is less, and it really isn't. It still exists, it's just an easier drug to dose and for patients to use. Because it doesn't usually require monitoring, because it's more predictable, that also leads to the misperception that bleeding is less likely. It's not. It's just it's an easier drug to dose people. All right. So this year, 55-year-old man presents emergency department, myocardial infarction, onset within the past hour. Which of the following drugs is the most effective? Alteplase, clopidogrel, dipyridamol, tranexamic acid, or vorapaxar? A. A? B. All of the above? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite, a word of caution, B 
Plus be very careful with questions on exams that have either all of the above or none of the above as an option. You won't see many of them, but just approach those with some degree of skepticism. <laughs> so the answer here is alteplase. Alteplase is what? Synthetic TPA, essentially. So this is going to open up the clot. Tissue plasminogen activator, and that's what you need. Clopidogrel, an antiplatelet drug, is not strong enough for what you need here. Diperidamol, we know, is very weak to begin with. Not useful here. Chlorpaxar, even though it's a thrombin inhibitor, not enough. You need something that's going to directly lyse the clot. What do the antiplatelet and anticoagulant drugs do? They prevent a clot from forming in the first place. If you're at risk for one, but don't have it yet. Like you probably all should be on now that you've been here since what, eight or nine o'clock? <laughs> I was telling just at the break that even though they're young and healthy, they've been sitting here all day. So I think they are at risk. <laughs> Get up and stretch, feel free. They will prevent clot from growing in the first place. And if it's already there, they will prevent it from getting any larger. But if the clot is there, they don't promote dissolution. The only thing that will, drug-wise, is a thrombolytic like alteplase. So why don't we give you all alteplase? Risk of hemorrhage. High risk for bleeding, including intracranial hemorrhage. Right? We don't want to expose someone to that risk unless it makes sense. And we know within an hour, there's a, remember the slide that showed the, the GISI study where you had mortality risk reduction and based on hours? It had some green bars. Right? For each like three-hour increment you waited, there was a 50% reduction if it was within one hour, but then it dropped to like 30 after three hours. So risk-benefit still weighs on the side of benefit if it's within an hour or two. But once you get out to 12 hours, the benefit is a lot less, and yet what is the same or even higher? The risk for bleeding, right? So now the benefit-risk ratio is no longer as good. What happens in that scenario? A patient like this presents 12 hours later, if they're still alive, go right to the cath lab, right, intervention. In fact, even an hour, they might go right to cath lab because they like to do procedures. <laughs> was there a, um, is there a question over here? No, that's what I was going to ask. It was that, so we got through it. Okay. And, and that's, yeah. this is what we're doing. We're giving TPA to help increase plasma, which directly dissolves fibrin. But it does so non-specifically. Wherever there is fibrin in the body, it will be dissolved by these types of drugs. And sometimes fibrin is there for a good purpose. Right, it's keeping things together. Now we're dissolving it everywhere. All right, 51-year-old man admitted to the hospital with unstable angina. Day five develops thrombosis in his left lower extremity. Lab test results significant for a platelet count of 50,000, which is fairly low, just to give you that perspective. And on an exam, I don't feel have the table of normals or not, but I would tell you the normal range if you needed to realize it was low or not. A drug with which of the following mechanisms is started? An antagonist of ADP receptors, otherwise known as PTY12 receptors, thromboxane synthesis inhibitor, enhancement of antithrombin-3 activity, inhibition of active thrombin site, or a vitamin K antagonist. Do you want drug names? These are, the, these are the drug, same, same question, drug names. These are the example drugs that fit into those categories. So essentially what this is asking is what is the drug of choice for what condition? This is higher level of thinking question. It's more than just recall, it's applying some of the concepts. This is a person who has suffered from what? If they're in the hospital with unstable angina, what drug have they almost always received? Parenteral anticoagulant with heparin. Every patient with unstable angina, unless there's a contraindication, they're going to get IV heparin as part of the treatment for unstable angina. On day five, he develops a thrombosis, so he develops a clot, and he develops thrombocytopenia. What's happened here? Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. This is typically how you see it. Within five to seven days of starting, Thrombocytopenia is simultaneously an increased risk for clotting and an increased risk for bleeding. There's a drop in platelet count, and whatever platelets are left have all become activated. That's why they tend to cause a clot. So how do you manage heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? That's what this question asks. 
you've got to put those pieces together to get there, but that's essentially the, the question. Is it with an antiplatelet drug Plavix, an antiplatelet drug aspirin, another heparin-like drug anoxaparin, a direct thrombin inhibitor by valerudin, or a vitamin K antagonist warfarin? This scenario is the reason that these drugs were developed. It's the direct thrombin inhibitors. Bivalarudin is the only option up here. That's why those drugs are available. We use them in other purposes now, but they were developed to manage the patients who need anticoagulation and have developed HIT. Because what happens? In HIT, now you can't use what? Heparin or low-molecular heparin, right? Because now the risk of that recurring is much worse. What could we give that safe and will still anticoagulate the patient and will work quickly? A direct thrombin inhibitor given intravenously. And bivalerudin is your drug. Derived from? The saliva, the saliva of the leech. Yeah. In fact, before we had these drugs, Someone had HIT and needed anticoagulation, and we didn't have bivalerudin. What did we use? Leeches. We used leeches. In fact, in surgery, you will still sometimes see leeches used locally, applied right to the skin. In fact, last year we had a case in the SICU where we had to, literally, we got them from leechesusa.com. That's where we got them. And they go to the pharmacy and we dispense them. And the problem is it requires someone to monitor because you have to make sure the leech stays on the site that you want anticoagulated and doesn't travel elsewhere. <laughs> that used to be much more common than it is today. That was an extreme case. All right, we're almost, we're almost done here. So 61-year-old woman, non-valvular AFib, has in the past received warfarin for chronic anticoagulation therapy. Soon to be replaced with one of the newer what? What is this? Rivaroxaban. It's a 10A. It's an oral 10A inhibitor. Which of the following applies? So gave one of these away. So monitoring of the PTT will be required. Administration will be via subcutaneous injection. Kidney function should be assessed. Protamine will be the antidote if an antidote is needed. And the answer is? Kidney function needs to be assessed. And why this is so relevant is because historically these patients are managed with warfarin. And do we worry about patients' kidneys when they're on warfarin? It's one of the few things we don't have to worry about. Lots of drug interactions, lots of diet interactions, have to worry about the liver. Kidney function, not as relevant. All of the newer drugs, all of the newer alternatives to warfarin, easier to use but all require some degree of kidney monitoring because they're all cleared, at least in part. And so we're not in the habit of doing that. Oral anticoagulants, we don't worry about the kidneys. These newer drugs, we have to worry about that. Monitoring the PTT, not reliable. Oftentimes, it doesn't even get affected. Administration's oral, so sub-Q is out. And then protamine, there is no antidote yet for the 10A inhibitors. There might be one. By the time you finish the program, we hope, but it is not available as of right now. And then so these direct thrombin inhibitors or direct 10A inhibitors, there's no intermediary. So their onset is quick, their duration is relatively short once you stop them. Very what you might call titratable drugs, relatively easy to use, but not benign. They have narrow therapeutic windows, it's just we don't monitor anything because the dose is usually very predictable. So similar table to what Justin showed you, the take-home points. How the drugs work, either factor 2 or factor 10 is the target. Their onsets are all relatively quick. What's the onset of warfarin? A few days at a minimum, right? Their half-lives are all relatively short. What's the duration of action? Pretty short. They're all undergoing some degree of kidney removal. They're easy to reverse. There are some interactions, but not as many as we see with other agents. And then so drug name recognition. So here it is. Let me see if I got all these right. So instead of eptifabetide or eptifabetide, we decided to go tyrofibin. So cross that one out and put tyrofibin there. Otherwise, these are the drug names you need to be able to recognize. So see the name, map it back to the family, and the principles and concepts within. So for the oral antiquity, you want to work 
and then three of what are now five new agents. So the bigotran, a 2A inhibitor, the veroxaban and the fixaban are 10A inhibitors. Bivalrin, a drug trauma inhibitor, bondiparinux, a more specific heparin-like agent, alteplase, the thrombolytic, and we talked about the antiplatelet agents. You feel ready? <laughs> <laughs> What about the, yeah, don't worry about the antihistamines. Now, you do need to be aware of pseudoephedrine and phenylephrine, right? We talked about those. Yeah, so know, know those, that they're decongestants and how they work. What's that? What were the names? Oh, pseudoephedrine. <laughs> Do you guys record these? <laughs> Otherwise known as what? Sudafed and then phenylephrine. What's the difference between them? I can't remember if we got to this. We might not have. One's addictive, right? <laughs> What's that? Can we send out, can we send out an email? <laughs> send out an email? <laughs> you want me to add content into an email? No, I'm saying, like, for sure, we can not worry about it. Oh, um, yeah, let's just do that. Let's say, recognize these as decongestants, right, for right now, and then we'll finish the story on them after the exam two weeks from today. All right, so you're not feeling so good about it right now, but do you feel confident that you'll get there? I don't think Mark is going to like 50%. How often do you get Yeah, most often, most often the topical preparation is phenylephrine, but not always, spray. Whereas pseudoephedrine is always oil. Oh, yeah, we there's was, was more to the story. And I, I'm pretty sure we need to. Um, how many questions? Um, approximately between 40 and 50. Yeah. They, um, I can't promise you they will be all multiple choice. But that, if they're not, then that's a lot of work for me. Um, We'll, we'll see on that. That's the best thing. It would be like, no, no, no. It would be a question where you need to fill in an answer. And I, the spelling doesn't matter, but that's why it becomes more work for me because I can't program the computer to say accept this word. I have to plug it in there like ten different ways, and then there'll be four other people that still spell it differently. So I have to go through every one of them. Um, and I've done that. It's just I don't. How much time do you have? So um, I don't know what's been cited yet. I, at some point, it'll go down to one minute per question. I don't think we're there yet. Um, yeah, so you'll have, I'm pretty sure you'll have enough.